Are you looking for an exquisite tailor handmade suit? Look no further. This episode is kindly sponsored by Monsieur Dandy, which is a fashion advisory made to measure and fashion design service. Inspired by the launch of Lance de la Française, combined with the Italian sprezzatura, his heart has always been between Parisian and Neapolitan style. After 20 years of working with some of the most luxurious brands such as Trunk Clothier and Marlebone and Alfred Dunhill and Mayfair, Monsieur Dandy decided to offer you his vision of what tailoring means to him. His tailoring is an approach of what we call smart casual, a man dressed well, sophisticated and comfortable. Monsieur Dandy works with some of the most prestigious fabric suppliers, including Laura Piana, Fox Brothers, Cacciopoli, Doug Dell Brothers, Holland and Sherry, to name just a few. He has also selected some factories in London and Italy to work with to create an inapproachable quality. If you'd like to talk about your new tailoring project, please contact Monsieur Dandy on 07985-165015 or send him a DM at Monsieur underscore Dandy. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Life Curated. My name is Nolan Brown. I'm an art dealer with a podcast. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Robin Katz, who I can describe in three parts, a very accomplished musician, a third generation art dealer with an exceptional eye, and to many, a style icon. Robin, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. We are recording from your quite fabulous home in Holland Park, which has incredible art history. Can you set the tone for the podcast and tell me about it? It's fun for me to be interviewed or podcasting. Prior to this being my home, it was uh, the studio of Lucian Freud. Wow. Um, and how that came to be, or rather how I came to live in it, was I was looking for a place to live. I was property hunting, home hunting, and the estate agent uh, that I was with one day said, aren't you involved in the art world? And would you at all be interested in Lucian Freud's studio? It's, it's <laughs> off market at the moment, but um, yeah, I don't know if that would be your sort of thing. So I think the very next day I came Snapped up here... Up saw it and realised what an incredible um, flat it was, not just its history, but it, it, it's just like a, it's a wonderful location and it's got an amazing atmosphere and it's, it really does have a creative atmosphere as well. Yeah, it's magnificent and we'll get into your music later on, but it really does double up as your music studio, your living space uh, and also an, an art gallery. So it's all kind of very functional. As I always start, Robin, what was your very first art memory? I've got a very good first memory because my father's an art dealer and in the first few years of my life I lived in a flat in Grosvenor Square with my mother and father and he would deal from his home so I was always surrounded by artworks and I've got this memory of playing with a horse and it was a gilt bronze horse and I remember playing with it like it was a sort of toy horse um, but it was an original Lorenzo Ghiberti um, who is Renace, who exactly? I've Lorenzo Ghiberti did the Doors of Paradise, um, coined by Michelangelo. Oh, wow. For the, uh, <laughs> well, that's the, the name of them was coined by Michelangelo. Michelangelo called them the, the Doors of Paradise. They're the baptistry for doors for the baptistry in Florence. They're sort of a great work of Renaissance art. And how old were you then? How old was yeah. I then? I, I suppose this memory's, I was two or three years old. Wow. Yeah. Do you still have the horse? No. <laughs> No, it's been, it's, it's, been sold it's, since. it's long gone. <laughs> it got 
flogged. <laughs> what was the art scene like for you growing up? The art scene growing up for me was a torturous monotony of being dragged to art dealers' galleries where I would have to sit in silence and listen to my father manipulating some sort of brinkmanship <laughs> upon the poor, unsuspected dealers he was up against. Uh, <laughs> it was also um, full of... I don't know if you can hear those sirens. I think that's actually quite apt, actually. It was... <laughs> I don't know why. No, but it was dealers, it was museum curators, it was clients, it was the odd artist friend of my father. It was his scene. That was the art scene for me growing up. I don't think I had a sense of the art world or the art scene in general. I had it only via the lens of my family and, and being around my dad. And your third generation, uh, your grandfather was a, a dealer in Brighton, is that right? My grandparents had an antique shop in the lanes in Brighton. Can you remember the first artwork you ever bought? I went to Olympia, the art fair in Olympia. I think I was about 19 years old. And I bought a tiny little wax profile portrait, English wax portrait, of a lady with a kind of strange hairdo I remember and sort of a lace bonnet in wax signed and dated by an artist I've long since forgotten but I remember the date 1777. Wow why do you think you bought that piece in particular? Something about it captivated me I, I think it was the delicate it's delicate nature being made out of wax it seemed amazing to me that something so fine could still exist and I had a plan of course and the plan was it was my first foray into being an art dealer. I wanted to buy something in order to sell it. So I did. And I, I bought it and I immediately sold it. And I took the proceeds and I went around Italy for the summer. I remember it funded a month in Italy for me. So you were buying and selling it at a young age? It was a one-off. It was an absolute one of the, the next time I bought and sold anything would be years and years later. Right. It was just an absolute one-off I did in the summer holiday. What was it like growing up in an art dealing family? Like, did you learn a lot from your father? Was it just your eye was trained? Did you, you must have seen incredible things that you have now as well. Like, what was the whole experience, especially through your teens? Um, so I've answered it a little bit and possibly quite, um, I suppose, humorously because it was brilliant to be around my dad. He is my mentor mm. when it comes to art and I've learned vast amounts from him. He's also the funniest person I've ever met, most embarrassing person I've ever met, but also brilliant because he doesn't have a formal education everything is learnt via experience Amazing. and it is a very hands-on experience of art and that was the thing that I got growing up it was pick the thing up it's it's literally pick it up and sniff it the amount of times I've seen seen him sort of pick a wooden sculpture up and rub it to kind of get the scent going and then sniff it and then think smells a bit too fresh to me. That was the thing which I really got, the physicality of these objects. And I think when I was studying art history in university, it was really apparent to me that most people don't get this, the luxury of being able to hold these things. Yeah. They are physical objects. Um, and you see them in a book. Now, of course, you see them on a screen and often quite a tiny screen. And the idea is to be able to pick a painting up, turn it around, 
tap the canvas, see how loose or taut it is, see how it behaves in different lights, try and understand the actual physicality of these works of art. That's the one thing that I really feel quite blessed to have been exposed to from a very, very early age and, and still am. And just for the listeners who don't know who Robin's father is, uh, he's called Daniel Katz and he deals in antiquities to 20th century art and is a wonderful dealer and completely self-made, I understand, yeah? Yes, so uh, like super quickly just to kind of tie my grandparents' um, antique store, the, the story of them having the antique store in, in the lanes in Brighton and how my father got going, I think my dad was 16 years old and they all set it up together and he was given the floor of the front window of this shop in Brighton to for him to deal from and because the floor was quite small he had to kind of focus on smaller objects and I think someone at the time said bronze is a good thing to get into you know so he he started buying and selling small little renaissance bronzes and I suppose the, the rest is history. I want to fast forward to something I read that I find actually very interesting, sticking to the arts. When you started out, you didn't want to follow in your father's footsteps. Then you went to Sotheby's and then you quit the industry altogether. You didn't look at a painting for three years, is that right? Something like that. Something like that. And then an amazing Grace and Perry that you found for a politician reignited the fire and love. Can you just elaborate on that period where you, you know, you went to Sotheby's, you just didn't want to be part of the art world. Just describe that for me. I've always been a bit rebellious. I still am a bit rebellious. I don't want to follow anyone. And having a um, successful art dealer dad meant that I wanted to do absolutely the bloody opposite Mm. and not go and work for him and not follow in his footsteps. Um, So I... uh, The Sotheby's thing was interesting because I worked I had I interned for the old master department in all the summers I had during after school and uh, during university I had an amazing time and I continued this idea of like touching the works of art you know there's this old master dealer trick of licking your finger and rubbing it onto a painting which would seem like a complete sacrosanct thing to do by today's standards for what but, purpose uh, in order to reveal what it might look like cleaned it's the spit test you get a big old gob of spit and you just rub it over the virgin's face and you can see how she's going to, you know, clean up. And so that being in the old master department, it, that continued that, that spirit of just being really hands-on. But when I graduated university, I was, there was an idea that I would maybe go and actually work for Sotheby's. So I started off with an internship and I went to the contemporary art department because that would be an area in which I could be quite it would be quite a different area for me to be in and it'd be one which my father's not involved in so there wouldn't be any sort of crossover which kind of worked the only problem was is I couldn't stand most of the art that I was looking at and I found it really quite depressing and the opposite of being in the old master department where they would they you had real agency being an intern at that time they would give you a painting and they put it in your hands physically put it in your hands and they say Robin what do you think that is and you say, well, I don't know, so maybe this is Spanish 17th century. Yes, good. Now run along to the Wit Library and, you know, try and get an attribution for us. And I'd spend, you know, a month just doing uh, attributions and learning huge amounts, like really getting my eye in and being a bit of a kind of amateur detective. 
I loved it. It was really great fun. And you also felt that you had some value. And then going into the contemporary department was very, very different because nothing needed to be attributed. Everything was already attributed. You know what these things are. And the atmosphere, of course, was very, very different because I suppose the contemporary art world, even back then, was as it is now, much more of an industry, much more of, I suppose, a kind of fashion-led area of the art world in which there's still I mean, they're great collectors and they're great artists but there is also that element of speculation and the romance of art was less apparent in that environment um, so I, I think I spent two months there before I quit and it was it was at that time I was starting to really get into music and I discovered Django Reinhardt and I discovered these gypsies playing gypsy jazz in France and I'd been over to um, this festival in Samoa-Susen to uh, essentially play with these, you know, play gypsy jazz music. And I was just getting obsessed. The, I'd caught the bug. And I think there was one day when I was had my headphones on and I was listening to this guitarist called Borelli Legrand, who is a great master. I think I got onto the table and was dancing. And I thought, well, this isn't very professional. And you lived in Spain in, when you were younger, didn't you? I did, yeah. Um, and I said, whereabouts? Marbella, sunny place for shady people. That's right. Was there any music influence there? Yeah, I remember listening to Paco de Lucia and I remember local flamenco in, in the little villages around there at that time, yeah. You originally focused on 20th century British art, but your taste and eyes so broad now, from Hordan drawings to Bridget Riley to young contemporaries like Tusfe Ugasa. You know, we've got all these young contemporary dealers, these young gallerists, and they're, you know, focusing on emerging uh, contemporary artists, which is fabulous. A lot of gallerists and dealers will focus on, you know, the herrings and all the uh, the known kind of contemporary works, which is, I get it completely. Uh, when I visited your gallery recently, uh, and also here in your home, there's such a broad range of, of, of beautiful, beautiful art, different types of subjects. Um, and I just think that in this day and age, it's something that is just incredibly refreshing. You sell what you love, you only deal in good things, but going from 20th century British art to Hordan drawings and uh, Eugene Carrière, we'll talk in a second, how did you develop that? Like, what does, I don't, I don't think it is a strategy, but tell me more about how you developed such a broad taste and such, a, such an eye. Well, there's a lot to unpack from your questions, so I'll just dive straight in. Um, you mentioned before I, there was a period when I didn't look at a single work of art and it was directly after this Sotheby's experience. I rebelled against it. I couldn't look at a single thing for a while. Having been brought up with it, having been obsessed with it from an from a early age, I just went fully into music. Of course, I went fully into music and was an impoverished, average jazz guitarist playing soul-destroying function gigs in my early 20s and then I bought a piece of art this Grayson Perry print and its value dramatically shifted within the first year of buying it it doubled in value and I thought well, that's a bit good isn't it I could you know I, that sounds quite good I should probably sell that and I'll make more money doing that than I do playing the um, kitchen showroom on Wigmore Street, sure. I, remember, okay. I remember playing a wig, uh, uh, the the opening of a quick kitchen showroom, and it was one of the most soul destroying, depressing moments of my existence. Uh, and so I, I started getting back into art, but of course, it was a period when 
you could get into modern British art, 20th century British art. They were great, great artists, not just Henry Moore and Bridget Riley and uh, Hepworth and Nicholson, not the, not the ones that are very sort of internationally known, but other artists that for not that much money comparatively, you could buy their greatest works. And that to me was really exciting. And when I started, didn't have much money. And this was an opportunity. Plus, I'm living in London. That's where these works of art are. We are in the United Kingdom. So the idea of starting to deal in 20th century British art was a no-brainer in terms of a strategy, but also was exciting to me because you could get involved in artworks and artists that you yourself were helping to promote them. There seemed almost something patriotic about trying to kind of bring out of the gloom an artist that had been somewhat forgotten or sidelined for the past 50 years. And, and it was exciting. You've been dealing for 15 years now. What are the rules you stick to? I have very few rules. I don't really consider myself a clever businessman in any kind of way whatsoever. So it's best to keep it as simple as possible. But I think if you're buying something with a view to sell it, these are the rules. Can I afford it? Do I think there's a profit to be made in it? I, can I sell it for a little bit more and keep the whole thing afloat? And most importantly, if I'm unable to sell it and I'm so-called stuck with it, would I be happy to live with it? And those are great rules. And it was, uh, it was Offer Waterman. I remember talking to him about it when my first year of sort of starting to get involved in buying and selling stuff. And I seem to remember him telling me that. And I thought, yeah, that sounds about right. That seems like good, straightforward common sense. Just take a note, sir. That's uh, fantastic advice. Um, what do you love and lament about the art world? I love how you get all sorts of walks of life, that it will bring people together from a disparate array of, well, a disparate array of people will come together and you can meet people that otherwise you just would never meet. Mm. I love the art itself and I love the way in which the art world brings forth these things, not just with contemporary art, but with older things as well. I love the fact that you can have a great life doing it. You can be your own boss. This is me as an art dealer speaking. Mm. You can change your taste at any moment you can you don't know when your phone's going to ring or you're going to discover something that's going to absolutely change your life mm. it could happen this afternoon we could finish chatting to each other and our, uh, this podcast is going to change your life you know that oh the podcast <laughs> definitely <laughs> changed your life it's um, happening already <laughs> yeah great uh, answers honestly well great. no no I, I, that's what i love about the art world and i love the fact that you get to look at these things you get to be involved in the art and the artists, yeah. be they long dead or brand new, uh, fresh artists to discover. Yeah, it's ever-changing. And actually, this leads me perfectly, perfectly to my next question. Um, when I visited you a, a few weeks ago at, at your gallery, honestly, I was blown away by Eugène Carrière, uh, an artist I'd never heard of or come across. Um, and I spent a long time thinking about it, Googled, researched. Can you tell me more about his work and then artists, other artists that you love, uh, maybe those here or whatever you, you want. 
There's, there's an anecdote, essentially. When I was in university, in our first year, we were given a module to do on John Constable. And I remember all of us just sighed, going, oh, God, how bloody boring this, you know, this really boring painter of English country scenes. We want to, you know, we want to do Botticelli, we want Dali, we want Andy Warhol, we want Basquiat and Michelangelo, we want the, the Caravaggio, we want these sexy artists. You know, we were first-year BA students, not this boring, boring artist. Anyway, by the end of the month, every single one of us absolutely loved John Constable. We'd been completely converted. And the reason I say this is one of the things I love about art is seeing something and being slowly proven wrong about something. And so you see something, you think, I bloody hate that. I don't like that. That is not for me at all. I don't like this art. And a year later, it could be your favourite artist. Mm. And that is exactly what happened with me with, with Eugene Carrier. I saw one. I remember it was my father who bought one. He bought one. And I looked at this brown, horrible painting and I thought, ugh, what is that all about? That's terrible. I don't like this in any kind of way. And I argued with him and of course he was right. He said, you're wrong. This is a great artist. So going forward, I was in Paris maybe two years later and I walk into a little gallery and I see this little painting of a person sleeping, the face of a person sleeping in every single tone of brown known to mankind. It was a symphony in brown and I bought it and that's where my love affair with this artist started. So Eugene Carrier is one of these artists that's been practically completely forgotten. He was active in the late 19th century and early 20th century. He was great friends with Rodin. He was exactly the same time as the kind of post-impressionists except that whilst all the Impressionists delved into the world of colour and did all this colour theory stuff and created these paintings that were bright and investigated the way we look, look at things and essentially all about colour. It's pure colour on a white background. He went the opposite. He did this, what I think is a very proto-modernistic instinct, which is to remove colour take all the colour out. And he painted these monochromatic paintings. His entire earth is, is a monochromatic investigation into how you can use monochromaticism, which I think is super exciting in relation to what ends up happening in the 20th century. So I think of him as a proto-modernist painter. And I think he's really, really important in that respect. Um, apart from that, they're very, very beautiful. Mm. He didn't travel to Tahiti like Gauguin did. Actually, he, there is something, I need to research this, but I've been told that he part, fully or partly funded Gauguin's final trip to Tahiti. So he was really sort of in there in the scene. He's, a, he's an important character historically. But he, anyway, he didn't have this kind of sexy story. What he did was he stayed at home and he painted his wife and his children in a kind of, there's a sort of monotony with which he does that. And I also think this is another proto-modernistic impulse because you've got people like Mirandi and Onkawara and a lot of these artists that in the 20th century make a lifetime of work of repetition and they look within to repeat. It's, they repeat uh, the same subject matter over and over again. 
somehow maybe it's to get to the essence of something. It's in order to kind of, maybe the subject matter is less important, but the essence and process of painting and art making is the most important thing. So I think that that's essentially what Carrier's instinct is. And so I started buying these paintings. I've got loads of them now. Maybe um, too many. They're wonderful. And also they're <laughs> beautiful in the way that he paints them and the way he uses uh, this kind of very monochromatic palette. But they're kind of ghostly beautiful. And I honestly, on the way home, and since then I couldn't stop looking at them. We are sitting in your living room in front of a Lynette Yadaman uh, Buaki painting. Lynette Yadom Boyake. Thank you so much. <laughs> I hope I'm saying that right. Which you bought 10 years ago. Yes. And um, my question was, do you support emerging artists? But evidently you do, because this was bought 10 years ago and uh, she had a huge retro... Was it retrospective or just huge actually based on her taste? Retrospective, yeah. They're so moving. And I love how also... Sorry, I've just picked up on this. We have this beautiful portrait next to... uh, I don't know who this artist is here on your left. They're all faces looking down or away. And then you have Eugene Carrière in the corner here. And they're all kind of faces that are looking away, not directly. I think it's the the ones that face you directly are more expensive and are harder to get. Um, Really? No. Oh, right, Okay. Um, points. But actually, I've just noticed that kind of it's it's they're all just slightly looking away or looking down or not directly at you. I, I love that. Do painting. have something of my taste is to things which are a little bit more sombre. Um, I do quite like things which are quite calm, but also I don't shy away from the macabre and the sombre. And so that might be what you're picking up on. The other piece which you're referring to is a large. Um, unique photograph by an artist called Richard Leroyd, who's someone else that I think is... That's exquisite. Uh, 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 he's a modern master, and actually he is, by my understanding, or the way I kind of frame him, is as a continuation of the School of London of Freud and Bacon um, and Auerbach and these sort of artists, He's but, he, but in the medium of photography. So what he does is he has, I think perfected the cameraless photograph, the camera obscura. He doesn't use any intermediate process. There's there's no film. Uh, his, wow. his camera is a large room that he physically gets inside of, uh, uses a large lens and the bellows to focus his the image of, of whatever he's taking, be it a still life or in this case, a, a model. And the the light from the image is goes through the lens, is turned upside down and is projected onto his back wall. He spends quite a long time getting focus and light right and the composition right. And when it's ready, he will close the lens and bring out photosensitive paper and then do a quick exposure. And so they are unique. And he's an absolutely fantastic... Uh, photographer technically but also uh, in terms of him as a sort of artist there's this implicit sense of art history in everything he does so if he's photographing a model you look at it and without in in the most ungarish most unobvious way you get echoes of 
historic artworks. So I look at this piece here and I think Ang and I think Hammershoy, but I also think Francis Bacon and Freud mm. um, in the most subtle kind of way. Yeah. So yeah. Richard Leroy, look him up. I We've been talking about paintings, but actually dotted around your home and also I know that you love your design pieces and I'm just... I mean, I love that ceramic vase over there, but I also love this cheeky little chair. Who is that in front of the Eugene Carrière? That's wonderful. Um, that's by a French designer, a post-war French designer, really active in the 50s, called Matthew Matago, who made... That's fabulous, Robin. It's, it's a really nice chair. Yeah. Um, he, the, the, he kind of used perforated steel, I think, so you get these this lightness to it. And, and where, where do you, you buy that from? A design uh, a auction got, or a I've design? I've got three of those chairs. So the two black ones in there are him and then I've got a white one. Great, I'll take um, it. And yeah, he it's a dealer's auctions. What period is he? That's about 1955, that chair. It's called the Coca Cabana chair, that particular one. And it's functional? Yeah. It's actually very comfortable. We'll sit on it later. Um, okay, so... Um, you have a project space uh, attached to your gallery. Um, can you tell me more about the curatorial program? You had two artists um, exhibiting there recently, um, Eva and Carlo. Carlo Brandolini. Yeah. Tell me about that space quickly. You're describing it as a project space and you're implying that there's some sort of program attached to it. Um, that's a very good idea. Maybe I should do those those two things. Maybe it should be a project space. How many of those chairs have you got? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I could shove them in there. That's, you know, project number two. That's what I... Um, that, no, that room that you, you came to and saw Carlo and Ewa's show, that is part of my space that I deal from. But I would like to start doing things in there. And having Carlo and Ewa there for the past month was really the first one of those um, experiences. Now, the last question, and it's a bit of hubris going on, but you know what, we can. Uh, we've both been art-mortalised. Uh, I've been photographed by David Bailey, and you have been painted by the great David Hockney. Can you please tell me how that came about and the whole experience? It was in 2002. Yeah, so a while ago. So I met David Hockney round about that period, and... Actually, it was when I was working for Sotheby's Contemporary Art Department. And he had, I remember one thing, he was really anti-anti-smoking. He felt that it was... Hockney was. Yeah, Hockney's a, a long, I mean, he's a dedicated smoker, yeah. right? So it was round about the time when smoking was being banned and you couldn't smoke on yeah, yeah. aeroplanes anymore and you couldn't smoke in restaurants and bars and you couldn't smoke anywhere, basically. And he was really up in arms about this. And he'd produced these little badges which said, end bossiness soon. Can't say end bossiness now because that is bossy. <laughs> so end bossiness soon. Um, it's the least bossy way of saying it and he gave me a big packet full of these badges and like a little arsehole that I was I went round every single person in the Sotheby's contemporary department and gave them one of them saying this is an original Hockney I, <laughs> I quit right? so I was a real little facetious little little shit um, so I'd, I'd done that and then Hockney Art said to me you know, I'm doing this series of watercolours 
They're duo portraits. So mm. what I'd like you to do is come and sit for one, but I'd like you to bring someone along. You decide who it is. The luckiest friend in the world, evidently. Right. But there has to be implicit psychological tension between you two. So I, my first girlfriend... <laughs> My first girlfriend, Arcadia, who really was my childhood sweetheart, and we'd broken up maybe the year before. So I called her up and said, do you want to come and sit with me? And I thought it would be great because it would... To get her back or to show off? No, neither. Neither. Really, quite purely in the spirit of what Hockney was was doing. I I just brought... In order to honour, I suppose, the relationship we'd had, and also in order to do exactly what he told me to do, bring someone which they would be, you know, there's a story there which, which wasn't being explicitly told and that it might somehow come across in the final image. So Arcadia and I are now immortalised. And was it painted in LA? Was it painted here? Or? It was painted here. Wow. Yeah. It was nice because it was about a day and a, it took him a day and a half to do it. I was going to ask, I, I read he was a quick painter. But He's I, a quick painter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he said that he didn't like speaking during the process and that we would have to sit there completely still uh, and that it would take a day. However, we nattered the whole time through it. Because if you, I think with, with David Hockney, if you have a real fascination and love of art and We'll speak about our history. You, you've got a you've got a good conversation to be had. Honestly, Robin, um, you know when I after Bailey pressed down the shutter, I, I was so overwhelmed. I just felt what an honour. How did you feel honestly after you knew you'd been painted by Hockney and you saw the painting in front of you? Like, was it just an extraordinary amount of emotion? Was it just a, a natural thing for you? It's a pretty big deal. I, I, I think I was a little bit too preoccupied by the fact that I thought, well, that doesn't really look like me or he's taken this artistic liberty here and there, and I couldn't quite get away <laughs> from that. difficult sitter, I like it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, but I'm just sort of, maybe I'm vain, and maybe I'm a sort of some something of a kind of perfectionist. They say perfectionism is a cruel mistress. Uh, but I couldn't really, at that time, sort of stand back from it and really appreciate it. But I, I can now. I, I think it's quite an interesting painting. Before we speak about your other great passion, um, would you mind picking up your guitar and, and playing a little bit, please? Yes. Oh, I just put this guitar here. It, you know.
Robin, you are a brilliant guitarist. Um, I was surprised to uh, hear that Slash, Bow Down to Slash, was a huge influence on you and still is. What was your very first music memory and how did it all begin? My first musical memory was wanting, knowing that I wanted to listen to music and going up to my father's record collection and I remember seeing a Pink Floyd album. I didn't know it was Pink Floyd at the time, but in retrospect, I remember it was Pink Floyd and saying, can I listen to that? And my dad, I remember him saying, no, that's for adults. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. But you can listen to this instead. And he gave me Neil Diamond's The Jazz Singer. So is, my first musical memory of listening to anything was... I'm not familiar with that record. Tell, tell me, is, that a, is it a good one? Is it a... Oh, it's brilliant. Okay. I mean, it, it, is, it is really great. It is really great. But it is very specific. If any of these, your listeners know what it is, they may chuckle a little bit. But yeah, that was my first, first musical memory. Was that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your style is uh, inspired by... I mean, I would call you a um, jazz guitarist. However, I know that there's a, a influences of nomadic folk, uh, folk, sorry, flamenco. Django Reinhardt is a huge influence on you. Can you tell me more about your love for Django Reinhardt and other influences that have shaped your style? Yeah, I discovered Django as a teen, and he's someone that every single great guitarist... Um, certainly of the 20th century, would have been exposed to, including Slash, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, back to Slash very quickly. That's what made me pick the guitar up. Really? I just was like, Guns N' Roses, Slash. Yes, I want to do that. So Slash was the reason I picked it up. And then on to Django. He's this great figure because he was illiterate. He came from an ethnic minority, the Gypsies, the Romani people, and he's a European. And so against the predominantly American jazz of the 20th century, he's the one great European musician that comes forward and comes out. And, and he does so with a specific European flavor, gypsy flavor, if you like. The music comes out of the old world. It comes out of kind of French waltzes and folk songs and gypsy music and stuff that probably sounds like klezmer. And from that base, he starts playing jazz music. And so there's a romance there that always appealed to me. Plus, as a guitarist, he's technically incredible. There's nothing he ever played that wasn't really musical. So he's an easy person to idolise. You play with the London Django Collective... Sometimes. At Louis, the extremely popular French bar. I don't play there with them, but I play with some other people at Louis. Yeah, I play Louis um, sometimes with Moses Dos Santos and Joseph Lawrence. That's right. And it looks like a lot of fun. I, I see the, the stories. It's quite fun, yeah. And you've also released an album, Love Song for a Zebra. Is that your first album? Yes. Which I've enjoyed quite a few times, actually. How did you... Um, tell me about the name of the album. So the album is just me playing solo guitar because I, I found it quite frustrating to be organised enough to put bands together. And as much as I've kind of tried here and there, I find myself often just, as every musician does, just playing alone. And so I was writing these kind of etudes and these pieces of music. So that's where that album comes from. The title for it 
I'm a hopeless romantic, and my ex-girlfriend, my nickname for her was Zebra. And that's, that's it. You, you, can, you can make up the rest of that story, I think. I won't ask why, why you call her Zebra. Painters talk about solving problems when they paint. It's a very emotional process. I really want to understand from such a, a great musician, give me an insight into the emotions that you experience when performing, first off, and then the process when composing. Music, actually any creative art form, but music especially, is super interesting in the, in the way it highlights neurological differences in people. So neurologically, you can be predisposed to have a certain skill set or a certain tendency that another person just might not have or have in different kind of ways. And I think that that's one of the things that interests me about music, certainly for myself, is what kind of a musician are you? And some people are very cerebral, have both sides of the brain functioning exactly the same amount. And it can be really channeling emotions and aesthetics whilst being fully in control of the, the cerebral elements of what it means to, to, to be a musician. I'm super dyslexic, can't read music, don't understand what's going on. But I somehow... I, I somehow get to it. I somehow get to it. Um, maybe sort of empirically, I suppose. So are you self-taught or did you go to music school? I'm self-taught. Completely? Wow. Um, more or less, yeah. yeah. A few lessons here and there. Oh, I had, had a... I'd like to shout out, go do on. a shout out to Bill Lovelady. Bill Lovelady is a great guitarist and a great composer. And he, in my late teens, early 20s, was a mentor of mine. Um, really introduced me to a lot of classical music, a lot of jazz music, taught me my first jazz songs, taught me like some classical pieces and really mentored me. Less sort of direct teaching, more kind of mentorship. Sadly, I couldn't make it, but you kindly invited me to your last performance at Fitzrovia Chapel, which what I saw and heard was very, very moving. Um, Tell me about that experience, because for me it looked very, very moving and you played in a cavernous church or chapel. Tell me about that whole concept. I will, but I'm going to just synthesise answering that question with just finishing how I was answering the previous question sure. when I was starting to get lost chatting about neurology, which I know nothing about. There's a very good book by Dr Oliver Sacks called Musicophilia, in which he discusses this, and it's, it's quite brilliant. But in terms of me... The thing I try and go for, you, you, you ask me, what does it feel like to make music? And there is this thing that people try and get to, and it's called flow state. People talk about this in all manner of um, different practices. But you do kind of want to get into a sort of shamanic, kind of hypnotised state of being, right? You want to be in a kind of great state of mind when you play. And that's the aim, I think. And so this concert I did in this stunning chapel, the chapel's Fitzrovia Chapel, it's a late 19th century neo-Gothic gold mosaiced jewel. It's one of the most beautiful hidden architectural gems in London. And so I was lucky enough to do a concert. I did it together with a fabulous musician called James Larter, who played the church organ. Wow. And so it was church organ, and then I was playing electric guitar. And we, it was half improvised and so I would say the first half of it was a challenge and the second half was fantastic for me 
Uh, can we just pick up on the improvisation? I mean, I got grade four piano and I think minus grade three clarinet. And I definitely tried to improvise many times. Um, improvisation is a huge part of jazz. Um, I've always kind of watched and kind of been intrigued at how you can improvise so much when playing jazz and perhaps even classical. But talk me through that. You just, you just go on a, a melody or a tune and you just keep on going and then you kind of bounce off who you're playing with like so this is a very ignorant way of describing it but improvisation in music uh, especially okay, so, in guitar so, like so so just like just to quickly explain that in improvised music especially sort of western improvised music you might have a song so in jazz music you might have uh, you know a, f- a famous jazz standard or a song from the american songbook and the song has a melody and to harmonize the melody you have chords and the chords come in a particular type of set order right so the way improvisation works in jazz is that generally speaking you will set the rhythm count the tempo start the piece the theme or the melody of the song will be stated by whoever is doing it be the singer or another musician and then you go into the improvised section and so you are improvising with rules. So you've got the chords, which are set, and because the chords are set, what you can do over the chords, within reason, you can be free with. Miles Davis said there are no wrong notes. There there are wrong notes, actually. Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of scared to ask this question, but what do you love um, and lament about the music industry? The fact that it is an industry. Mm. And it's the same thing with the art industry. The, the moment you take art and music and you put the word industry after it, there's a contradiction in terms there, isn't there? The fact that you take something which essentially has a purity to it and then you have to make an industry around it. I suppose that's what I would lament about it. And love? The fact it's music. There you go. There when, you, when is your next gig? I'm playing Louis just before Christmas and... I'm planning to do a series of performances back at the Fitzroy Beer nice. again next early next year. Fantastic. What a venue. I, can't, I, I really can't wait to, to see that. What do you enjoy more, selling art or making music? Making music. Now, I want to talk about your style. You have a fantastic sense of style. What shapes it more, art or music? I don't think anything shapes it. I don't know. I suppose a bit of both, actually. Let me think about that. Um... How would you describe it, first off? Oh, God. Actually, I remember overhearing that someone had described me as that guy that can't make up his mind about what style he is. Is he a Mayfair suited and booted, Savile Row wear it, suit wearing gent, or is he a sort of Adidas tracksuit? I guess it's a chameleon. Chameleon, you know, it's, it's all just whatever. Like it's whatever goes, really. I don't really know what informs it. To be completely honest. Last question uh, in style. You mix it up, as you just said. Uh, can you give the the audience an idea of where you go? Do you go to Portobello? Do you go high end? Is it just a mix? It's a total mix. I mean, I'm wearing today a pair of Armani jeans that belonged to my dad in the nineties, wow. and I found in back of a cupboard a few months ago and have pretty much worn to death ever since they don't fit me so I've got a kind of belt that's somehow holding them up 
um, and I love them. And the pinstripe jacket, always she. Uh, that was a gift. That's a double RL. I love this brand, and it was a gift a friend of mine called Joseph gave it to me. Robin, I feel like I talked to you for, for years and years. My last question, which I ask everyone, you've been photographed by William Claxton. We saw the pictures earlier on, on, in Lake Como. You've been painted by David Hockney. Other than these two artists, living or dead, who would you commission to do your portrait? Maybe Botero or Tom of Finland. Fernando Botero? Yes. <laughs> really? Or Tom of Finland. Do you know Tom yeah, of Finland? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yes. An incredible artist who's, uh, who's on a stamp now. Um, I don't know. Okay, well, those are slightly <laughs> humorous answers. Like, if I was to really take that question seriously. And also, you love your exercise and, and uh, not weight, you're not weightlifting. So, Patera is an interesting one because that's all kind of corpus, very corpus and, and fat. Uh, Rotund. Rotund is There's the perfect a certain one. stylization. Tom of Finland is much more your style, but maybe not uh, in terms of uh, the activities they get up to. Definitely not. <laughs> Do you want to stick with those? We can end on those. No, you have to. You know, I'm going to end. I'm going to end. I'm going to try and end on not a humorous note, but a sincere note and think who really was a truly transcendental portrait painter. And someone like Velasquez has got to be it. So, maybe Goya. I think Goya, because Goya would implicitly show all my insecurities. Okay, and I'm going to give you one more because this is because I I'm enjoying this so much. Living artist. Could be a photographer, could be anyone. That's a difficult one. I'm trying to, I have so many. So First many one that artists. comes in. Well, funny enough, I think there's a a young painter called Sergei Kononov who I'm really into. He's Ukrainian. He's like 29 years old. and The painting in your kitchen? That's right, yeah. Nice. Um, I think it would be really fascinating to be painted by him. Interesting, again, that painting you showed me earlier, the face is not visible. But oh, have... no, but you haven't seen the others of his. That particular one, his face is obscured, but he, he's, he's done some pretty fantastic portraits of people. Good answer. So Velasquez and Sergei... And um, Tom of Finland. <laughs> Robin, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. No, thank you.